All right, Christ Community Church, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be in verses 1 through 35 this morning. And so as you are turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this Easter morning. Because Jesus is the risen Lord, His resurrection informs and transforms the whole of our lives for our greatest good to the glory of God and for the life of the world. Let me read that again. Because Jesus is the risen Lord, His resurrection informs and transforms the whole of our lives for our greatest good to the glory of God and for the life of the world. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word, this is Luke 24, verses 1 through 35. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread 
and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this lengthy narrative, we, we want to make a few observations, recognizing there's, there's a lot of things that we can't get to, a lot of questions we may not be able to answer, but we want our focus to be on the resurrection of Jesus and how it is that we are able to recognize uh, his presence, uh, his, what's being said and taught about him. So our first question is very important. It's, what is your primary focus for reading the Bible? Now, the reason for asking this question about the resurrection and other things is the Bible is the primary way in which we hear from God, in which God has spoken and has revealed His redemptive love for us, which even it says, and we know to be true, is most displayed in the person and work of Christ. Not just His death, but powerfully in His resurrection, knowing that we too will one day be resurrected to newness of life. And so we must read Scripture with the right focus, the right lens. Too often, I have to confess, like many of you, I read it with myself as the main focus. I read it looking for personal, uh, personal uh, betterment or personal motivation or personal direction, which those aren't bad things, and the Word of God is good for many of those things, as we've seen in the Wisdom series. But it's important that we recognize that the direction it's going to call us in is to make more of Jesus, to see and behold Jesus in his resurrectedness more and more. We should recognize that any personal betterment for us comes only from us being formed further into the image of Christ. To use the language from our Proverbs series, the wisdom series, that we would become more righteous and just and equitable just as he is. And so too often, I think, we, we take a very selfish and individualistic uh, focus for reading Scripture, which allows us to lop off the parts or ignore the parts that are either hard, tell us something we don't like, or are difficult to understand. We do the same when God's Word is proclaimed in sermons. Uh, with the, the liturgy that we use here is filled with Scripture, and we, we do that because that is the main way in which we're going to behold Jesus. And so we must first recognize and confess, and this is important for you to do uh, either today, tomorrow, or sometime soon, confess the ways in which you have narrowly read Scripture for your own gain or for your own purposes, maybe not intending to, but it's just what we do uh, so often. It's our natural bent. So as we turn to the text, the first thing we want to see is that Jesus is the risen Lord indeed. Now notice, there's a, a group of folks who have come to the tomb, and what we know from the end of chapter 23 is this is the, a group of women that had been following along with Jesus. They were disciples. They were listening to the teachings of Jesus. They'd been affected by the teachings of Jesus. Some had been healed. And so they were going to, to do the practice of uh, essentially trying to keep the body from smelling. So they were taking spices to, to try to honor the, the dead Jesus. But instead, what they find when they get there 
is this massive stone that, that no human being should have been able to easily roll away without being found. In fact, what we know from other gospels is that guards were set up so that this very thing couldn't happen, so that the body of Jesus couldn't be stolen by the disciples to create this false resurrection narrative. When they get there, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. Now notice what happens beautifully two men suddenly appear, and they recognize them by the dazzlingness of not just their clothing, but just their radiance, uh, that they are angels. And their response is to, like so many in Scripture, fall down in fear at the power of these beings. Now, what may have been called to their minds in seeing these two men who testify to the risenness of the Lord is the requirement that, that something be established on, on the testimony of two witnesses. Now, these angels are serving as those two witnesses testifying to the risenness of the Lord. Note that they, they remind them, Jesus has told you this previously. And that occurs in Luke chapter 9, where he, makes, he says exactly what they repeat here, that he must be delivered up to sinful men to be crucified, but that he would rise on the third day. And here they are on a Sunday morning, discovering that at, at minimum, what they now know is that the tomb is empty. And that these angels are testifying that the Lord is risen, and He is risen indeed. And the angels ask them a penetrating question that I think is still very pertinent to us as God's people. He says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, part of the reason that they asked that question is He had told them that He would meet them in Galilee, that He, he would go ahead of them and, and essentially prepare the way as their risen Lord. But there's something even deeper here that I think we need to think about because it's, it's a practice that I think we're all guilty of. We are constantly seeking wisdom, direction, guidance, transformation among the dying and the dead, those who've gone before us, instead of turning those things over uh, and seeking those things in the power of the Holy Spirit because of the risen Lord, who is making intercession for us even now and is going to come back and make all things new. In fact, Colossians tells us that our lives are hidden with Him on high, that Him being seated at the right hand of the Father, completing our redemptive work, the redemptive work that was required for us to be able to be at peace with God, our lives are secured, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and so for us to seek life more abundant among the dying, which would be other people who have no greater strength, wisdom, or insight than us, ultimately, they, have no, they see through the same glass darkly that we do. They struggle with the same things. Not that we can't gain earthly wisdom. I'm not talking about uh, dieting. I'm not talking about exercise wisdom. I'm not talking about uh, gardening wisdom. I'm talking about life. So often we seek life and life more abundant among that which is those who have either died or those who are dying. We ought to be the people who seek life, life more abundant in Christ and in Christ alone through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as it goes on, they then turn, take this information, and they, they remember what Jesus had said in Luke chapter 9, and they run back. They're excited. They want the rest of the disciples to come and see. They want it to be investigated. They, they want it to be known. But when they return, uh, this group of women, who their names are mentioned here. We don't have enough time to go into who, who each of them are, but it, they, what's important is that they're real people that had stories and backgrounds, and, and we can even gain from 
Scripture, knowing their names, more of who they are and see their transformation and journey in some measure. But they show up and, and are telling this story and including the part about the angels declaring as the two witnesses that he is risen indeed. And they're dismissed. In fact, it's, it's kind of derogatory term here that, that's called an idle tale. The disciples have become so cynical uh, and, and that is what we do sometimes, right? How many times do we dismiss the work of God when somebody's testifying to the great glory of God because it's just too supernatural for us or we're so cynical that we just we can't believe that God would transform that person, uh, that, that, that God could work in the life of that person, that God could work in the life of that dying marriage or this other addicted circumstance. This is the risen Lord, the God of new life, the, the Christ who longs to make things whole. And yet we've allowed ourselves to grow cynical in a fallen world and sometimes fail to see and hear and be encouraged by the work of the Lord all throughout the world in all kinds of different places, whether we can imagine it or not. This is part of our problem. Our imaginations aren't near as baptized as they ought to be. We're not near as creative as we 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 would benefit from. And so they reject, but one guy takes it a little more seriously than the rest, and it's Peter. And it makes sense that Peter would be the guy because he has gone through some things, as we've heard throughout this series, and he at least recognizes this is worth looking into. The others weren't even going to go and look, but he takes off. Uh, and, and it seems to be that he's by himself here. Now, later on, we, we heard that it seems some more came, and we don't know in what sequence they came, but he goes, sees that the tomb is empty, and returns marveling. But he's not quite yet ready to declare that Jesus is risen indeed, but it's beginning to, to stir some things. And so uh, it, it's important that we, from this section, uh, take away that, that Jesus is risen indeed, that we recognize some of the ways in which we struggle just as these folks struggle to see, to behold, to, to, to enjoy, right? That we forget, we forget the things that God has said in his word. And we need at times uh, uh, people to help us to remember whether that's natural or supernatural. I would argue it's all supernatural since it requires the Holy Spirit to help us to see but we, we are just like them. We forget the good declarations, the promises that God has made in His Word to us. And we need help to remember. In addition, we also recognize that we, we look for abundant life in all the wrong places. We seek it among the dead and the dying. And we need to instead seek the abundant life, the things that matter, pursue eternal things from the risen Lord in and of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we also recognize that some, we're cynical. Our hearts grow cold. There's times that we hear stories of God doing amazing things and we think, well, I didn't see it directly. I don't know. I question it instead of having any sort of hope and recognizing that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of all things good, can do all these kinds of things. Let us be a people much more willing to be amazed and in awe because Jesus is risen indeed. Listen to what Lewis Burkhoff says about this, and it's actually important that we recognize the necessity for us to prepare 
to prepare for the resurrection. That's what all of those things, those things keep us from doing. The forgetting the word of God and his promises, um, the inability to see the supernatural workings of God, cynicism, all of these things keep us from preparing for the resurrection that is to come, that has been sealed for us when we know all things will be made new. And he's going to use the word sanctification, but wherever you, I want you going forward, when you hear the word sanctification, I want you to begin to pair that with preparation for resurrection. That, that we are, uh, one of the reasons we have been left between the now and the not yet is to mature further into the image of Christ for the mission of God so that the family would get bigger and for our own great good and benefit so that when we go to taste and see the fullness of the goodness of God, we will have a palate that is ready, ready to, to have the flavors explode ready to, to be amazed and in awe. Louis Burkhoff says this, The very thought of death, bereavements through death, the feeling of sickness and sufferings, are harbingers of death, and the consciousness of the approach of death all have a very beneficial effect on the people of God. They serve to humble the proud, to mortify carnality, to check worldliness, and to foster spiritual mindedness. In the mystical union with their Lord, believers are made to share the experiences of Christ. Just as he entered upon his glory by the pathway of sufferings and death, they too can enter upon their eternal reward or resurrection only through sanctification. See, we've got to be preparing for this. Too often we're coming into situations very flat-footed very unprepared to see where the Lord is at work. We are blind to the power of the resurrection that is at work in us even now. He goes on, death is often the supreme test of the strength of the faith that is in them and frequently calls forth striking manifestations of the consciousness of victory in the very hour of seeming defeats. So we're saying there is we need to remember what Christ has done for us and that even in, the, in moments of seeming defeat, that it would, the Spirit would call to mind that we would have quick access to the truth and the beauty of the resurrection. He finishes with, Death is not the end for believers, listen to this, but the beginning of a perfect life. So here's my question for us. How are you preparing for resurrection in Christ? You may say, well, how do I do that? Well, we need to be students of the Word, and we're going to hear this in the next section, with a particular lens. We need to be students of God's Word, looking for how Christ would be exalted. When Christ is exalted, we, His people who are in union with Him, we are exalted in the best, most humbling way possible. We need to also be investing in eternal things. We need to gather for worship on a regular basis. We get the opportunity every single Sunday to practice a bit for the new heavens, new earth, where there will be singing, where there will be uh, a liturgy of some kind, where there will be work for us to do with our hands in ways that we can't even begin to imagine, uh, given our, our lives in a fallen and mixed up world. Though we are saints, we are still yet some, some version of sinner. And so worship week after week is a, is a way in which God declares yet again His love for us, His promise to redeem us, where we get to be assured of our pardon and our union with Christ. Think of all the gifts that Sunday offers to us. It's a feast day. It's a day on which we declare a ceasefire. We ought to be a different people on the Lord's Day Sabbath. Our language ought to be different. We, we, we ought to lay aside complaining and groaning and grumbling. 
We have to be the kind of people who encourage and edify one another. We would come into worship prepared, expectant, uh, looking for the, the Lord in what He says, asking the Spirit to help us to see Jesus in all aspects of our gathering together. And then throughout the week to serve, serve others, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in those things, we will find Jesus has prepared the way, gone before just as He did for them as He has gone on to Galilee. And so uh, we need to be investing in eternal things. So are you? And if you're confused about this, well, part of discipleship is to ask. Let's talk. What, what do we need to help you to grow in, in any given certain area? We are willing to be flexible, start new things if we need to, start new groups if we need to. Uh, but we want to serve you in this so that we are a church that recognizes that Jesus is risen indeed, and that matters. All right, let's turn back to the text and see how Jesus is the primary focus for interpreting God's Word. So the scene shifts. We now have two disciples who are on their way to Emmaus. One we know is named Cleopas. The other is unnamed. Now, there's a couple of different possibilities here. I think from the text itself, because it says that the risen Lord had appeared to Simon, that this is probably Simon Peter going along with Cleopas. And so you notice they're, they're kind of trudging along. They're talking about the events of things. And Jesus, I love this, he draws near to them. How many times has Jesus drawn near to us and we have the exact same response in some measure as the disciples? We can't see him. And if you notice the language of the text, it says in, in verse 16, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This means that we can't see Jesus in our own strength. We can't see Jesus because, because we, we have read a bunch of books or had a bunch of experiences. We can't see Jesus unless the Holy Spirit grants us the ability to see. We know this from other aspects, particularly John's gospel, where Jesus in chapters 14 and 16 talks specifically about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so they're, they're kept from seeing him. And so he's asking them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're, they're almost dumbfounded that anybody around Jerusalem has, has not heard of the events. So they begin to recount to him what's happened over the last few days. And notice the language that they use. Notice how they speak of Jesus here. And I think this is important. They say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now I want to pause there and notice there's no description of king. There's no description of Lord. There's no description of risenness. All of this is temporal stuff. So they had failed. Even though Jesus had taught them, Jesus had explained it to them, they had failed to make the connection that he, he while he was fully human, he was to become something uh, more, more fully human in the resurrection and that he, he was also the savior of the world, that his death was not actually the end of anything except our judgment. It put to death our judgment and laid aside the wrath or satiated the wrath of God on our behalf. But even their description is telling. Now, how many times are we guilty of just describing Jesus in very common terms that actually diminish the great work that he's done on our behalf in our own head and heart? Be careful of this. I think this is telling. And as they go on, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, this is interesting because it is a failure to actually understand what God's redemptive plan was in the first place. Via the Abrahamic covenant, all nations would be blessed. 
So to singularize it to just Israel, again, is a, is a failure to understand God's redemptive work as it's clearly revealed in the Old Testament. So they had some things wrong. In fact, they also got some things out of order. They thought that the crown could precede the cross. They thought that they had already endured the cross themselves in and through decades and decades of exile and suffering for the people of God. And so they had too narrow a focus on the things, the governances, the nations, or in this case, nation singularity, of the earth. Now, is this not a problem that we have been convulsing over over the last ever how many years, but it's been, it seems to have been acute in the last 10 years or so? And so we, we need to recognize that we, we want to be careful that we are not as blind as these disciples are because of, of, our, uh, of a, a, a fake understanding or a false understanding of the fullness of God's redemptive plan. Revelation 7 gives us this beautiful picture of every tongue, tribe, and nation being represented and singing songs together, gathered together in worship. Why would we not want to get glimpses of that? between the now and the not yet? Why would we not want to be the kind of church in which a diverse group of people are welcome? And not just welcome because we say, hey, you're welcome, but our actions actually make them see that they are welcome among us, that our, the things that we stand for, the ways in which we are righteous and just and equitable would be a, 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 a hospitality to them. Instead of saying one thing with our mouths and doing another, either on some keyboard somewhere or in our actions and deeds, we need to recognize that their narrowness of view is not because it was antiquated or they are any different than us. We have the same capabilities of failing to recognize that we must be redeemed in soul, and that leads to the redemption of the body, not the other way around. And so too often, we have too narrow a view of redemption and God's reconciliation and don't recognize how truly radical it is. And so as they're saying these things, Jesus takes them to task. He tells them, he says, you who are foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, like he's, he's recognizing this isn't just an enforced blindness. This is a self-inflicted deal. They had failed to recognize the truth of the scriptures. They had failed to, to see and, and long for the right Lord. And so, no, they couldn't see him. And so he begins to challenge them, and he takes them through scripture, and he shows them that the whole sweep of scripture is about him. So this is important for us, that from Moses to the prophets, that would include the first five books of the Bible and, and everything after that follows but what we would fail to realize if we don't recognize what he's saying here, too, when he in, invokes the prophets, that also means something about Israel, right? I've been reading the minor prophets for my study of Scripture for 2021, and it's, 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 it's been beautiful and difficult and convicting because it's not just about uh, the, the coming of a Savior. It's also about the failure of a people and how deeply broken and in need of a Savior they are. By, by the ways that they live out their lives, not just in, as individuals, but collectively as a nation. And so he makes it very clear that all these things are about him. So what that does for us and, and what that means for us is when we read the Old Testament, we need to do so, and the New as well, with Jesus in view. 
Now, not every scripture is some sort of allegorical description of some aspect of Jesus, but every scripture points to the need for and the coming of and the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. He is the yes and the amen. In places that are hard, like, say, Numbers or Obadiah or Nahum, those books scream, declare, proclaim that left to our own devices, we are utterly hopeless. Destruction is our only, uh, only thing that, that, that can come. Uh, and so those should be books that sober us and cause us to give thanks that that is not all that we are left to. We should be able to read those hard texts with an eye toward Christ. Thank you that you have brought us out of that, that quagmire. Think of the passages that are about war, and we have great questions about how Israel dealt with other nations and treated folks and enslaved them and dealt with them as commodities. Well, Amos has a lot to say about that uh, and, and deals with them harshly on that, but early on it seems as if that's what they were called to do. What do we do with that? Well, we look to Jesus and we say, thank you, Lord, that war is not our only means of submitting or our only means of seeing others brought into the family. We have been granted a better way. And so the whole sweep of the Old Testament essentially is a, a, a very thorough takedown of our ability to save ourselves and our need for a Savior. And the New Testament essentially is the declaration of that Savior who has come to save us. And so this is very helpful to us. Jesus' pattern here is good, but notice not even that opens their eyes. So you can go to seminary, you can, you can study scripture in all of your strength, but you cannot see the risen Lord unless the Holy Spirit grants you. And notice where it occurs. As they continue to travel, Jesus acts as if he's going to go a bit further, but they say no, they, they show hospitality, they say, please come in and stay with us. And a very interesting thing happens. He acts as the host, even though it's not his house. He takes the bread. He breaks it and blesses it. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit chooses to open their eyes. Now, it could be that they are remembering the last Passover and that, that brings their, their, their mind, that inflames their imagination. Their eyes are suddenly open so that they can see the risen Lord. And what a beautiful moment that he would take an act of hospitality and then he would serve Again, just as he had done so many times, he came to be the servant of all. And so for us, there's something similar here. If we want other people to see Jesus, there's hospitality is a critical aspect of that. It's not just hit and run evangelism. It's not just um, um, drive by or track bombing. And so we need to recognize that he's teaching us something very important here as well, that we, because we are in the resurrection, can welcome people in so that they might behold more fully the resurrected Christ. And this charges them. Now they become the two witnesses, and they go back and start declaring. Notice how their tune has changed, and they declare these wonderful words in verse 34. They said, The Lord has risen indeed. And he's appeared to Simon. Now the reason Simon is sing singled out here is, again, his fall, I'm sure, was very public. His his struggles were very public. And so remember, Jesus had prayed for him that when Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, that he, his faith would hold and then he could come back and encourage the brothers. Well, what he gets to come back and encourage them in is that Jesus is risen indeed. They have hope. Their cynicism can now go away like a mist. 
and they can begin to do the work that they've been called to do, which is to, to make disciples, to declare this truth throughout God's kingdom. I love it. it says it was made known to them in the breaking of bread. And so I love this quote from Edmund Clowney, and it's uh, very helpful to us. He says, Luke would have us understand, he's talking specifically about this passage, that the story of Jesus begins with the story of humankind. Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. To follow the story of Jesus, we must begin with the first page of the Bible, even before we are told the story of the fall. The Genesis account prepares us for the role Jesus Christ would play in humankind personally. Adam served as the representative man. Christ came as the second Adam, which is from Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Not as a divine afterthought, but the one chosen from the fountain, foundation of the world to manifest all that the divine image in humanity may mean. This means that Jesus in his resurrection displays what it means to be most human. Now there's that difficult portion where when their eyes are open, he disappears. And what that tells us is Jesus is not to be grasped or held by our limited senses and abilities. There's a sense in which his, the fullness of his resurrection is too glorious for us to, to be able to behold in full just yet. It will only be when we are made fully new that we will not lose the vision of the fullness of the resurrected Christ. And so even that tells us that we are going to struggle along the way. We're going to need to be reminded that Jesus is risen indeed. We're going to need to, to use the means of grace to help us see. We're going to need to cry out to the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus in these things. And so how does Jesus as your primary focus affect your interpretation of God's Word? In our Tuesday morning men's group, we talked about this. One of the ways that you um, keep from, from becoming yoked to or, in, or enslaved to a, a toxic leader or toxic theologian is take what they're teaching and ask, does this exalt Jesus? Does this make much of Christ or does it make much of him or her? or even us, which is more dangerous because we like that. And so it's not that you need to know exactly where all the king's names and the exact dates and how genealogies match up. You don't have to know all that. You don't have to have a seminary degree to read your Bible. You have been gifted with the skeleton key, as they call it, Jesus. Does this interpretation exalt Jesus? And so the same should be true of you. Be careful because it's easy sometimes to cherry pick scriptures or to get caught up in, in differing uh, kind of ideologies based on just a handful of things. And so often as I've looked at those things, they don't make much of Jesus. They tend to separate and divide, whereas Jesus brings together and unifies. And then how might this help to make sense of some of the harder passages in the scripture? We've alluded to that earlier, but this is something that we want to use. So as you are reading scripture, you have questions like, oh, what am I supposed, how does, can Jesus be the lenser? Email us, call us, text us, make an appointment. Let's break bread and see Jesus revealed that he is risen and risen indeed. So Luke 24, 1 through 35 teaches us that Jesus' resurrection informs and transforms the whole of our lives for our greatest good, to the glory of God, and for the life of the world. Church, would you join me in asking that the Holy Spirit would help to open our eyes every Sunday, every time we break open our Bibles, every time we're presented with a testimony of the goodness of God, that we would be able 
to see Jesus as risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is risen indeed. Thank you that the tomb is empty. Thank you that your word has been fulfilled in Christ, that your promises to us who you love and call beloved are yes and amen in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we have been tasked with revealing that to the world. We are the witnesses now. We are the ones who are to give testimony, to make disciples, to be the ambassadors of this great reconciliation. Would you empower us in the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you help us deliver us from cynicism and seeking things among the dead and the dying and forgetting? Would you bring to remembrance the things of Scripture the hymns and songs that we sing, would you give us words fitly spoken in their due season? I thank you that we can read Scripture and have Jesus as the main focus, the skeleton key, the, the way in which we can begin to understand the fullness of your word to us and to mature in that over time. God, thank you that you have tasked us with so great and high a calling the declaration of the risenness of Christ. In Christ's name, amen.